So as long as it's fair, as long as it's voluntary, inequality is fine. Inequality is great. We want those who succeed to be more rewarded than those who destroy value. But in the sense of our current environment, we have really sinister inequality. If everybody, you know, if, if the water's flowing and everyone is benefiting, right? Everyone's cup is filled. Um, people are happy, right? They have better things to do than to line up outside of someone's house and threaten to chop their head off. You know, I, I don't think we should be setting up guillotines anywhere. And that's, that's why I love Bitcoin. It's the peaceful revolution, right? Um, but why do people want to set up these guillotines? Because they know the system isn't working. It started to make a lot of sense to me that if we fixed money, we fixed so many problems in society. And so as a technology person, I was like, what should I be working on that's more important than this? this is, there's nothing more important than this. Hello and welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today I have on Bill Bergman, who's the Chief of Research over at Truth in Accounting. Uh, Truth in Accounting is a great organization. I did an interview with their CEO and founder, Sheila Weinberg, a couple weeks ago. So go and check out that one too if you like this one. Bill is a professor at Loyola University in Chicago, and he teaches a class on banking, which I had the pleasure of uh, talking to about Bitcoin. Uh, he's just got a great take on things, having worked at the Federal Reserve in Chicago for over 10 years and just doing a lot of really cool stuff. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Okay. Okay. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Good to have you. Thanks. Nice to be here. So um, if anybody doesn't know who Bill is, he is the head of research at uh, Truth and Accounting, which is just kind of a scary organization. They're a think tank that runs all the uh, government numbers and tries to help voters be a little bit more informed on government uh financial policy. He also teaches a banking money and capital markets at Loyola University um, in Chicago. And uh, your background includes uh, 13 years as an economist and uh, financial markets policy analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank in Chicago. Um, so yeah, um, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about um, how first principles really change the narrative and understanding money. Uh, why, why do you think there's such a disconnect between um, understanding basic fundamentals of money and the average person? Well, I guess um, a lot of people take things for granted that have been around for a long time. And when you look under the hood on, on those simple questions we were talking about, it's, you realize the history and the depth of the, uh, the depth of the uh, conflicts and or ambiguity that's underneath what we take for granted in, in terms of money and banking in the United States. Uh, you, simple questions, what is money? And from an accounting standpoint, you know, well, money is... For, for, for the balance sheet for assets in, in corporate America. Yeah, um, I, I live under the assumption that the money is broken um, and that's what I've kind of deducted from my research. Uh, and I, 
started this podcast to try and get like the word out on Bitcoin because I think it's a better form of money um, 100% for like a variety of reasons. But uh, um, I feel like when we fix the money, we fix society. But there's that disconnect is so um, broad that uh, uh, normal people just don't get it and they don't see the importance of it. So I'm trying to be that bridge for them. Um, well, here's, but, here's, here's my question for you. cash and cash equivalents and it's good to take a look close look at those words um what is cash and in, in accounting and in history cash isn't just one thing it includes two things uh currency and circulation is is in there ben franklin's hundred dollar bills but also bank deposits including uninsured bank deposits and one thing that we've learned historically in the united states is that those two things that go into cash aren't necessarily the same thing. In fact, during banking panics, they, they do very different things. In a banking panic, people want the cash, <laughs> the currency. They don't want the bank deposit. They run on the banking system. But our, our public policy has established an architecture of stabilization, quote unquote, for banking activity that engenders a lot of moral hazard and, and actually sparks more risk-taking on the basis of the stabilization like deposit insurance or the existing the existence of the federal reserve system as mm -hmm. a lender of last resort um so we we have these two things that are the, the government has tried to make equal to each other with with government policy to make cash on hand cash in a bank um, be more or less the same thing but if they're not the same thing and in fact in a crisis for instance in 2007 2009 you know they were very different things uninsured deposits were risky. And if that's true, how do we then go to the next set of that, uh, that top line item is not just cash, it's cash and cash equivalents. And again, it's just a simple philosophical question, but if cash isn't equal to itself, logically can cash equivalents even exist? Um, but no, we, our accounting standards have tried to subsume all that stuff into this one account and then tries to pretend that it's the same thing, but we keep getting our head handed to us in financial markets, including in 2007, 2009, when the money markets erupted. Um, and, and then we have bailouts and the longer term consequences from the bailouts are, are very problematic for citizens and taxpayers. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, when they walk into a bank, they see the FDIC insurance and feel a little bit more at ease. But in reality, it's actually means that uh, the banks can operate in very risky and I would argue unethical uh, ways and the way that they handle money. Um, I, try to, I try to stress to my students that the value of honest banking is, is so important. And, and, and I don't want to get too critical. A good banker is worth their weight in cold, as they say. But unfortunately, in our, in our banking system, we've had too many um, eruptions arising from what, you, what you're talking about. And it relates to the, the, the safety net that we've established, which itself is a source of risk. Uh, you, you'd mentioned that these banks can go do risky things. Uh, the insurance world has, has long recognized that once people have insurance, something called moral hazard arrives where the, the person who gets the insurance has an incentive to take more risk. 
because they're, they've been insured. Um, and you can argue then that, you know, effectively you and I as citizens and taxpayers have effectively provided a form of insurance to our financial system in a way. And I'm afraid we just didn't do our job as citizens and taxpayers in 2006, 2007 in monitoring the risks that were being undertaken on our behalf. Have you seen the movie, The Big Short by any chance? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that, it's, it's a little bit, uh, it's entertaining maybe, and that's not quite truthful, but it, it, they have some very good observations there about um, the system and how it really works. Yeah, I, I think the average person is unaware of how fragile it is and how much of a house of cards it really is. Um, and the, the whole 2008 financial crisis really put things into perspective as far as like, people don't realize like how fragile the banking system is and if it were to fail, what the implications would be. Um, you know, they wouldn't, like my old job banked with Bank of America and Bank of America's not the best. Um, and if they go under, uh, I did, I wouldn't get paid. Um, and if I don't get paid, I get evicted. And if I get evicted, then, <laughs> yeah. And, and just like the implicate, like the, the amount of instability that that creates for society is just unreal. Um, well, in theory, in theory, we, our government uh, has tried to stabilize our system through the Federal Reserve and through the regulations on the banks. Unfortunately, it's, you know, in, in my neck of the woods, my background includes um, an MBA and another master's in public policy from the University of Chicago. My favorite single course in that experience was taught by Sam Peltzman, who was an econ you know, economics professor, the economics of regulation. He was an understudy of George Stigler, S-T-I-G-L-E-R. And Stigler was an amazing guy who was um, more or less one of the founders of this capture theory of regulation, whereby um, businesses, you know, in their view, wasn't they don't necessarily dislike regulation. In fact, the powerful businesses, well-connected businesses, control the regulators. And, and when they do, they can erect the regulations and in turn the public safety net in ways that um, end up allowing insiders to take the upside and socialize subsequent losses. That's what I'm afraid we've erected in our banking system. You, you and I are, you know, we don't have capitalism here, in, especially in our, our financial markets. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a managed state of affairs that is not a free market outcome. Yeah. Uh... I have a friend uh, that I've been talking with pretty consistently and he's very, he works in the medical field and we've talked a lot about um, kind of like socialism versus Austrian uh, thought. And uh, um, a lot of people don't realize that government regulation oftentimes protects monopolies and creates monopolies. And uh and I think everybody can agree that monopolies are bad for economies and for the overall common good. Um, and that competition is really like at the root of um, overall prosperity in economic markets. But um, yeah, there, there is such a disconnect between those thoughts of like, you know, um, the regulations actually oftentimes doing more harm than good. And, and when, 
the argument is thrown out there that we need to deregulate. Oftentimes people hear we need to give more power to these corporations. Um, when in reality, you know, we need to give more power to smaller firms to really be competitive. And it, it really is an interesting debate. Yes, it is. And, you know, oftentimes the knee jerk response to failures is we need more regulation without a um, careful observation or analysis, whether or not regulation itself was the source of the problem that arose. Um, why do you keep banging your head against the same wall if regulation hasn't hasn't fixed things. Uh, that's one of the that's one of the my criticisms of the big short they they almost have kind of a knee jerk. Well, we should have been regulating more. And in fact, we were <laughs> regulating and it was that regulatory process that was abused. Um, it, it, I, I just finished a uh, long uh, article that is probably going to be a, a contribution to a new book coming out an economics book. Mm -hmm. It was my, my subject was Paul Douglas, a very interesting fellow, longtime professor of economics at Chicago and then U.S. Senator from Illinois for three terms. Douglas has a reputation as a quote liberal, but um, he's a very interesting cat with strong fiscal conservative um, tendencies. And one of his things that, you know, at the end of the day, as he got older and older in his in his autobiography, as well as some of the later speeches that he gave later in his Senate career, he had some very um, interesting things to say. You know, competition is preferred to regulation. That was one of his messages that at the end of the day, the, the corruption that can enter the regulatory process, you'd rather have consumers and producers making their own minds up and, and reaching a, an agreement absent the intervention of dictates from, from the government because those, those can end up having side effects that aren't necessarily unintended. <laughs> they, 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 they are actually the special interest groups control the government as, at, at the expense of the taxpayer and citizen. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, again, going back to first principles of, you know, what are markets and what is trade, you know, people trade to be better on both ends, not... <laughs> not the opposite. And yeah. Um, so you worked at the Chicago Fed um, for 13 years as an economist and a financial markets policy analyst. What was that like? Um, it's, it's, it's been uh, a long time since I left and it's still almost kind of hard to discuss. I'm afraid it wasn't the most pleasant experience. I did my best while I was working there. And, and I can look at myself in the mirror, but at the end of the day, when I reflect on what I tried to do and what happened, say, in 2007, 2008, um, it, was, it wasn't that pleasant. Um, having said that, there, I, I met some great people there that actually left <laughs> before I did almost, some of them. One of my best friends and mentors there was a guy named Bob Laurent, an economist who had actually done his PhD dissertation for Milton Friedman. Bob was a, a great guy um, and a fun guy to, you know, learn from. Uh, and I, you know, there were some projects there that were pretty interesting and good. I, my first five years there, I was, um, among other things, you know, current economic analysis every month trying to figure out what happened last month. And one of my lessons from that experience was that, you know, for all the fancy math and all the effort that apparently goes into forecasting, we've got enough trouble trying to figure out what happened last month as opposed to, 
expecting what's going to happen in two or three years and expressing confidence in those predictions. Um, a longer story that relates to your interest, I'm afraid, in, in Austrian economics and the, the, the importance of humility and, and not uh, having too much of a pretense of knowledge. I, I, I've, I've gained more respect for that. Um, and the, you know, here we are in the United States, we have a law that directs 12 people more or less to uh, manage the total amount of money and credit for more than 300 million other people. Can they even, you know, even if they were honest, how well could they actually do something like this is a, is a hard question. Um, but the, the, you know, I, my, my job in the current analysis section was interesting and I, I gained some respect for the, you can't take statistics for granted, for instance, these monthly data items that come out, they can get revised sometimes dramatically. And I, I gained more respect too for understanding the statistical um, ambiguities underneath, say, measuring inflation. We have enough trouble just counting heads in, in employment. Measuring inflation, when you look under the hood on the statistical techniques that they perform in order to do this, to come up with the numbers that they tell us are, are the truth, are the amount of, uh, you have some heroic assumptions that go into, for instance, measuring quality and, and quantifying quality in goods and services. And so I gained some respect for the, you know, the, the under the hood questions about measuring economic phenomenon in that, in that environment. Um, but the last five years there, that was the, you know, some of the most interesting projects and uh, politically sensitive projects that I undertook. And that was as a financial markets policy analyst where um, looking, you know, more or less driven initially within that department to look at, you know, under the hood on the plumbing you and I, we use banks to pay each other money and, you know, retailers and you and I, we go, you know, we swipe our cards and boom, the money goes bing, bing. But banks pay each other money too. And there's a huge infrastructure for wholesale payments and the, the settlement of financial market transactions. How do, the, how do the futures markets and the stock exchanges interact with the banks in moving money and settling transactions at the end of the day and the risk management processes in there? That's kind of what we were we were focused on, but it was in that environment that I undertook some, and I had a fair amount of independence, which I abused apparently, um, in in choosing questions and pursuing them, while I was while I was doing those questions. And there there were at least three projects with stories underneath them in that area. I'll I'll share one of them with you. I in 2003 I developed a um, catalog of all the references to credit ratings in Federal Reserve regulations and operating practices, credit ratings issued by NRSROs, these nationally recognized statistical rating organizations, which have been enshrined by law and regulation that they, they use their, their, their ratings in the regulations. And I had written some very influential work. I had read some influential work from Frank Partnoy and others criticizing, wait a minute, you know, if they're using the, the regulations, are using credit ratings, it's possible that's why they're valuable. They're not valuable because they're especially insightful, but they have a license more or less to print money in an oligopoly that was in, you know, kind of enforced by this NRSRO um, sanctioning process undertaken by the SEC. And longer story short, I wait a minute, if they're inflating the ratings and they're using the ratings in capital regulation, we're not gonna have the capital in the banking system. That was a, a paper that I more or less wrote um, but I was told, no, you, you can't work on this, go work on something else. And that was in 2003, as the bubble was getting going. And it, in hindsight, it was a good, a good contribution. There were, there were a few others. Hmm. 
Yeah. Something that I saw recently was that uh, credit ratings for individuals is, are uh, higher than ever, even as we're seeing record levels of unemployment. And it's pretty, uh, pretty wild to think about that, that people potentially have more access to, to credit um, when they have less income um, or no income. Uh, and yeah, that's a pretty wild story. Um, so what, what, um, drew you to working with, uh, truth and accounting? Well, I, um, had, uh, I was in a, a in-between job situation. And one thing that I did, I was invited to give a presentation about the financial crisis. And this is, um, geez, eight, nine years ago or so and gave my gave my spiel and and a fellow in the front row Ralph Seife a great guy a friend of Sheila Weinberg's um, came up to me afterwards and hit me with his business card and I saw the logo and I was kind of hooked at that point it was kind of <laughs> it was wait a minute this is what I I was working on accounting issues and the Federal Reserve's own accounting for instance when I was at the Federal Reserve had some critical um, observations along those lines and uh, wait a minute, I care about this stuff. And one thing led to another, and I kind of hooked up with Ralph, and my uh, my relationship with Truth and Accounting grew over that over that from that from that spark. What have you uh, really learned since working with Truth and Accounting? The degree to which, as citizens and taxpayers, we rely on information that um, is filtered through the media in ways that doesn't necessarily reflect the foundations on which we stand uh, and we shouldn't necessarily be taking you know there's so much confidence in uncle sam at the end of the day when you look closely at the underneath where is the strength coming from it's almost a state of mind that you know the confident as long as the confidence is there the financial strength of the United States will be there, but it's whether or not it rests on a sustainable foundation. That's another, you know, one thing that I like to do, and we have this database called Data Z. I added a section in there on, the, on our financial report of the U.S. government section, the rhetorical analysis area. I'm a believer that you can actually do creative, simple things in a world of very complicated financial challenges and analytical challenges and one of them, I counted the number of times the word unsustainable appears in the annual financial report of the United States government. And you can see this, it marches much higher in the last decade and a half because the people writing this are getting more and more concerned about the sustainability of Uncle Sam's financial path. And that's, that's something we, again, we can't take it for granted even if the bond market, you know, we learned in 2008, 2009, that bubbles can happen. And I'm afraid that um, you can't take treasuries for granted along these lines. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at the um, data Z right now. And uh, it's funny that you guys are based in uh, Illinois, which is one of the worst run governments in the country. Um, city of Chicago too. Uh, one of the crazy things that Sheila talked about when I talked with her was um, the way that 
governments uh, have these balanced budget requirements and they continue to deficit spend by uh, um, borrowing money and, and listing it as revenue. Um, and that kind of goes to the sustainability piece. And, and one of the things that she brought up was how that is kind of a attack on um, on our democracy in a sense, because these governments are dependent on these lenders. Um, do you see that that's something that's gonna kind of continue and increase or is that gonna be an issue that's gonna be addressed on the broader scale? I think awareness of the of this uh, charade is is rising and that's no and doing no small part to Sheila's efforts and what she what she started developing back in 2003 2004 was this truthful balance sheet for state and local governments you know they they didn't have the pensions they didn't have the retiree health care obligations on the books they finally arrived in recent years and the dollar amounts are staggering and and yet, you know, the, the, the possibility that the process can still be abused is still there because the, uh, the budget accounting in many places is based on cash-like accounting principles that don't recognize accrual expenses and or, you know, I still remember the day I, I walked up to a, a city council member, a, a person at the Chicago City Council who was on the finance committee and asked him point blank, how can you claim to balance the budget every year as you're required to do under state law and yet your, your accrual revenue falls short of your accrual expenses every year? And he was almost proud. Well, we borrow money. We, you know, we, 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 the borrowing is, is, is how we get the money in the door. It's revenue for us and that's, it's revenue until you have, to get, you have to pay it back. And it's almost, it's a vehicle for growth and government that um, again, is uh, potentially not sustainable. And Illinois and Chicago are, are kind of among the first to be uh, running up against the, uh, the problems that that long-term practice has engendered. So right now what we're seeing is kind of a growing sentiment that we need to grow our government and provide more services to people. Um, and it's growing increasingly more popular. I feel like the Republican Party is was traditionally the party of fiscal responsibility, but is moving further left and the Democratic Party is moving further left. Um, what, when you say it's not sustainable, what, is, what are the implications of that? I, the first one that comes to mind may be the most important that is currently not believed to be an issue, and that's the the possibility of a, a breakout in inflation uh, at the end of the day, you know, if the granted states and cities can't print their own money, but the federal government can, and following the outbreak here in the pandemic and the lockdowns, growing calls, especially from the, the states and cities that are in the worst shape for federal government support um, is not just restricted to the needs, the immediate needs for medical uh, assistance. <laughs> there are broader claims for um, the federal government to step in and bail out the states that are in bad shape. And can the federal government do it in the short run? Uh, it certainly can, given that it has the power effectively to print money electronically or otherwise. But I'm, I'm gonna share with you um, 
you know, some of some of the reasons why I think that may be too, they may be too overconfident that 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 bucket will always be there. The the financial report of the U.S. government it includes a balance sheet. It has that balance sheet has roughly four trillion dollars in assets, about twenty four trillion dollars in liabilities, that arguably and we believe are seriously understated. But let's just you know, take it for granted that four minus 24 still leaves you with a big hole, uh, a $20 trillion negative number. Um, however, there are the, follow the following two sentences appear in the financial report of the U.S. government to introduce the balance sheet. Um, the, they're supposed to be comforting, but let me know if you're comforted or not by these two sentences. There are, however, other significant resources available to the government beyond the assets presented in these balance sheets. They include the government's possessive ass, government's sovereign powers to tax and to set monetary policy. <laughs> in, in, in other words, we don't need to worry. Our government is gonna be okay. It can take our money away or it can inflate the value of the dollar away to, to pay off the the debt. And is that comforting? There's no. a there, there's a point there's a point at which bond investors may not show up. And I there's a there's a good old quote about bankruptcy that's relevant here. Um, the how did you go bankrupt is the question and the answer is very slowly and then all of a sudden and it's it's almost like you know when do you get to that tipping point when crowd psychology changes its mind? I don't want to be a chicken little, but I'm afraid, you know, we need to, you know, we haven't managed that possibility like we should have. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, I had a um, guy on the podcast yesterday named Pierre Richard, and one of the topics that we discussed was. Uh, how Bitcoin is unique because it's it's much harder to confiscate than other forms of wealth. And I don't think a lot of people realize like when your money is in the bank, it's not really yours. Um, and a lot of people are unaware of, you know, things like capital controls um, uh, where governments can debase your currency. And then uh, like I've had a few people on the podcast that have experienced it either in the Soviet Union or um, Egypt, um, you know, we, Sheila brought up Argentina and Venezuela when we talked. Um, and, you know, for somebody listening, they, they might like roll their eyes and be like, well, these are all like terrible examples to compare um, the United States. It can't, it can't happen here or can it? In fact, it already has. Mm -hmm. If anybody takes a close look at 1933, I think uh, you learn that our, um, our vaunted system may not rest on such a, a stable foundation. That, that 33 episode has long-term consequences for how do you manage your money in a world where the government can say, um, turn in your gold or you're going to prison, which is more kind of what the message was from the government in 1933. The, the bank holiday in March and the subsequent um, seizure and then revaluation of, of gold in terms of dollars was something that helped the government and the banking system. But was it was it good for America or the people that turn in their gold? And 
the law that asserted to be the foundation for that extraordinary action in 1933 is basically still on the books. Check out 12 U.S. Code 95A, and you'll see some language that provides today for some draconian authority for the executive and the president in any crisis. Again, I don't want to sound like a right around the corner or something, but you've got to you've got to think about these things. I'm afraid. And, and those authorities are still on the books today. I don't know the technology as well as I would like, but with cryptocurrencies, whether or not that extraordinary action that we learned from 1933, the government can undertake with respect to gold might be out there. That's why some of the skeptics, even from libertarian folks that I listen to on cryptocurrency believe that government is just too powerful at the end of the day in, in terms of the guns and the laws that that that's the challenge that faces these cryptocurrencies competing with with government money and government money systems i don't i don't know what the answer to that question is yeah so that that's definitely a major concern uh, especially right now as uh, all the central banks are trying to move to their own um, digital currencies and even like the commercial banks are moving like jp morgan for example are moving to their own digital currency that is going to be pegged to the dollar, but, you know, may eventually unpeg and they'll have printing powers. But here's the thing is like, um, that really has me hopeful. I've had some people on and I've brought up those concerns recently. And so there's going to be multiple factors playing into it. So like today um, and yesterday, Bitcoin has made some major moves upward um, while the stock market's taken a little bit of a hit people are looking for places to put their money. Now, millennials are in younger Zoomers, I think are like a little bit more prone to be interested in Bitcoin as a digital currency um, and put their money there, but they don't have the majority of wealth. But what we're seeing in 2020 is there are companies, so the ball started rolling with uh, this company called MicroStrategy um, and Michael Saylor, the CEO and he said, you know, cash is trash. You know, it's like sitting on a melting ice cube. They inflate the uh, supply of money by 22%. Like, why does it make any sense to hold this? I'm going to put my, you know, 400, almost $450 billion into Bitcoin because that is something I can trust will like either retain value or gain in value in 30 years. Um, and so what I think is inevitably going to happen is like, you know, all these policymakers and regulators are going to be forced in their own personal uh, finances to adopt Bitcoin because, um, you know, there's nowhere else to put your money. I mean, it's just like the system is failing and it's completely falling apart. And I think that's going to be a much buller, bullet, much more bullish case for it to survive. And even if they make it illegal, um, you know, there's been so many things that have been illegal, uh, like marijuana, for example. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure like a large majority, large majority of the population, like making it illegal, isn't going to make it go away. And, and that's the thing about Bitcoin. Like they, they can, um, ban it, but I, I think, you know, ultimately that will strengthen <laughs> the, strength in its use case and it's like 
the Silk Road is a great example. So people, um, you know, buy drugs on the internet and the Silk Road got um, taken down and like 20 other black market sites popped up. Um, because what, what these people are trying to do is they're trying to, uh, I mean, ultimately, like the best way, I think, for them to compete with Bitcoin is to do something that um, has similar monetary policies to practice like really good um, monetary policy to like protect individuals privacy and uh, personal rights and allow them to like custody um, and to not manipulate the supply. And if they were to do that, you know, with and force people to use it, I think it would be a lot bigger um, and take off, but I, they're not. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, I'm nervous, you know, to some degree, you know, if it's like a ban, it would be pretty um, problematic. But I, I think that like every day, um, that the network survives, the stronger it gets. And, uh, um, mm. and so that's pretty exciting. I mean, they can try and control and break down the free markets, but what's going to um, happen is there's just going to be a black market that operates and, and they're, they're not going to last forever. Like this monetary policy that's just like silly is, is going to fail eventually. That's what happens with every fiat currency in history. Um, so, but I don't think Bitcoin's going anywhere. Um, and then, you know, there's arguments about like quantum computing and stuff like that. But if, you know, a quantum computer like attack the network, it, the, the centralized um, networks are way more vulnerable than Bitcoin. I'll, I'll say that like, you know, hacking JP Morgan's servers is a lot easier than hacking the Bitcoin network, which um, is distributed across the world and is the most secure computing network in the world easily. Um, and will only grow so as like computers get more powerful. But um, I'm, I'm not like tremendously worried about a ban. Um, I, it'll probably take a, a price plunge if that were to happen but like bitcoin is money and um will remain money uh and i i yeah i don't know i mean i i feel like if it gets to that point like civil disobedience is really going to be um something that's really important because what they're essentially doing is i mean what they're already doing but they're infringing on people's rights and it's just going to be a disaster um and it's obviously not going to be done in the people's interest because what is in the people's interest is good money <laughs> so and um it, it's going to be like a hard argument to make but yeah i mean the I, I think ultimately all the regulators are going to be owning bitcoin and they're going to be some of the first people to own it because they're the most in tune with um knowing what's going on you do, know they're do, gonna... you, do you see a day when the government maybe accepts bitcoin for for paying your taxes do you see that down the road or well you know what, what's what... interesting about it is like there's already uh state governments that accept bitcoin like i i think i can't remember if they do in arizona or not uh what i think is going to happen is instead of uh 
these like coercive taxes is that that we see now like kind of what you were referencing um uh earlier uh where the government can just like take people's money away arbitrarily is like uh, something like bitcoin really like evens the playing field where instead of them just like putting a gun to your head and saying i'm going to take your money um you know they have to beg people for money and uh uh because it's so much harder to confiscate it's so much harder to uh, manipulate and track and they can't just like endlessly print it as well um Phys physically how, how what are the constraints on government actually seizing bitcoin is it can't can't the government do that if it wants to uh i mean what they can do so the way the infrastructure is built out right now is there's like a lot of uh uh, companies that accept Bitcoin uh, or that sell Bitcoin. So like, you know, they could target those companies um, that are like central points of failure. And we've seen that happen. So like recently they uh, went after this exchange that was on some small island in the Caribbean called BitMEX. Um, and they can go after uh, people, you know, like, like throw the book at people like that um, at the central, uh, uh, you know, whatever. But what they can't do is they can't stop people transacting. In it. And that's like where the real game changer is. So like um, there's a anonymity, you know, people say that Bitcoin's like pseudo anonymous. And so um, when what they, what they've been doing is setting up for like a big move where, you know, if you register to buy it, which is what most people do, you know, if you register to buy Bitcoin on an exchange, you have to give all your information. Um, so you kind of dox yourself and it's kind of hard yep. to, um, but when, so like, say you and I are transacting and we create like a small Bitcoin economy and we're using, ex you know, wallets that aren't connected to exchanges and, we're operating in a peer to peer. So like, say like, I want to go to a merchant that doesn't accept Bitcoin. So I send you a hundred dollars and you give me a hundred dollars cash. That is anonymous in a way that they can't like track and control in the same way that um, you would if you were using the exchange. So if they attack the exchanges, like that's one thing. I mean, it, it would be catastrophic to the to the price in the short term, but it would probably just strengthen the economy is because you're going to have um, the hardcore ideal idealists around it that just operate underground. And there's already a, Oh, go ahead. Where is Bitcoin trading today? Just out of, um... um, it's sitting, it's looking like it's making a move up to 14,000. It's sitting at 13, six right now. 14, 14,000 what? Uh, dollars. That that's my question. You, you you just said that they were dollars. Do you see that always being the case with Bitcoin? Is it always priced in terms of dollars? No. Or no. or or what would the what could the future hold? Where would it be donated in something else? Or how would that how would that work? Well, yeah. I mean, once you start pricing things in Bitcoin, it it really is a paradigm shift and. Uh, that's kind of what I try and do personally. I try and stay out of dollars as much as possible because, you know, they're really <laughs> uncertain. Um, and I think a lot of people are moving into that uh, um, mindset because um, it's just, 
you know, the monetary policy is just silly. But we're, like, we're, we're thinking creatively here, but it's always, you know, it's always good to think uh, creatively and, you know, money, what, you know, that we teach the students that, you know, th there's three main roles for money. You've got a store of value, a medium of exchange and a unit of account. And what is a unit of account? And we take it for granted that the dollar is the unit of account and it pervasively is today. That's undeniable in the United States. It's, and it's, it's valuable for that reason. But you know, in the next 20 or 30 years, I think it's gonna be very interesting to see what might happen down the road and, and how we frame our, our financial statements. You, know, mm -hmm. you go into a supermarket uh, you've got you've got thousands of different things on the shelves. You go into a supermarket, except for one thing. They got one thing in common. They're all they're they all have prices in terms of dollars, and that that's what you know. That's where money gets pretty interesting as a as a a unit of account and a measure of comparison. And what we're talking about now is a possible phase shift in a new paradigm for what the unit of account is it's it's not going to happen tomorrow but it's you hopefully know, the ev <laughs> the evolution the evolution could be interesting to watch that's what i try to tell my students anyway i hope it's peaceful i hope it's productive if it if it goes in that direction and and it's market based but at the end of the day i personally get skittish i think the powers in government and that try to control government they have access to powerful tools like weapons and, mm -hmm. and, and, and force that um, can forestall this from happening. So it, it's gonna be, I hope, you know, anyway, it's gonna be an interesting future down the road for sure. Yeah, I think it, it yeah, I like to call the government, um, the best way definition of government that I've heard is just the men with guns. Um, and I think that's a, a, a good way to describe it. Um, and, and women these days, but go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and women. Yep. The people with guns. Um, well, but there's other people with guns. Oh, we're, we're getting a little bit crazy. Let's, let's keep moving. <laughs> yeah. The people with bigger guns. Yeah. I think um, <laughs> Lebanon is a pretty interesting, uh, uh, and Venezuela too. So like a lot of these countries where their currencies failed, the default is the dollar. Um, but there's a shortage of dollars uh, in countries like that. And then, you know, like as we've seen in Argentina and other places, like they can put restrictions on it where, you know, you're forced to use the government currency. And I think that's kind of the biggest case for uh, a use case for Bitcoin as being something that is, you know, censorship resistant, immutable, you know, whatever, where, where you see that, that paradigm shift of more and more people adopting it. But yeah, I think like, you know, some people you may talk to in this space will, will talk about it in like short or short term uh, uh, transitions, but I think it'll be a lot longer transition than some people, people think, but I think it inevitably will happen because it's just better money. Um, well, it is one, money. One important element of that, speaking of our within accounting, one important evolution of that to watch will be how do the accounting standards deal with this stuff how, how does how does FASB or GASB or the F Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board at the federal level um, watching what they do in this area will be important 
uh, in part because, you know, government uses accounting just like business does. It's the language of business. It's also the language of government. And it has, it, it's powerful for that reason. So watching the accounting standard setters and how they uh, relate to issues in valuing and treating Bitcoin within the financial statements will be something that's important to watch, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, oh, have you been following the IMF at all recently with their calling for the new bread and woods agreement? No, not not really. What did you see, or what are you what are you looking at as, as specifically? I don't know. I didn't I didn't look too much into it. I just saw a headline and started laughing because it sounded like it's going to be a complete train wreck. Because um, trying to get anybody to agree on anything today is just far-fetched but yeah. international international cooperation is hard to achieve and it breaks down when we get there it's the the lesson from history including 1971 and subsequent developments yeah i had some guys on uh <laughs> the podcast they came up with a website called wtf happened in 1971 and all it is just a bunch of should definitely check it out it's just a bunch of charts of like um with like red dots on it like right at 1971 and it's just it's a it's a pretty good uh on-ramp um for explaining why sound money is uh such an important thing um, interesting i i i recommend to anybody if you have a chance there, the videos are out there in those announcements the the speech that he gave i show that speech to the students the televised speech announcing the the ultimate, you know, the, the closing of the gold window. And mm -hmm. uh, one thing to remember from that experience, along with 1933, is the importance of the penumbra of executive branch authority, national emergency, and or, you know, a time of war. That's the legal and constitutional law backdrop for presidents when they try to do aggressive unilateral things in money and banking. They, they tend to move into that area. Uh, check out national emergency powers and, and war powers in the executive branch. And uh, what, sometimes we need a, a spine or two in Congress to countervail the, the executive branch when they get aggressive along these lines. A longer, a longer story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I'm a big fan of Ron Paul. He was always really interesting. He was, he was, I, 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 I've grown to appreciate him more and more as I, he's still writing and doing good things. It's, it's yeah. fun to, it's fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's fantastic. Uh, where, where can people follow your work? Our, our main website is www.truthandaccounting.org. Uh, we also have that companion website, dataz.org, D-A-T-A hyphen Z, where you can look up. Uh, state, local, federal government, financial and economic information. That's a lot of fun to play with once you get started, I promise. And then finally, I, I do a morning newsletter every day. We've got about 800 people a day or more uh, addicted to this. Uh, you can sign up for the, the morning call newsletter that I do at our, at our website too. Yeah, I'll make sure to go get on that newsletter right away. And um, I see you're on Twitter at Bill Bergman. Um, I'm very, very inactive there. And I've been, I, I blog, but until I, I've been too busy in the last month that I just stopped blogging, but I'll, I'll get, I'll get going on that again. I've got about 500 articles on our website on, on truth and accounting. Yeah. 
Yeah, Truth and Accounting is one of the most uh, incredible websites I've ever come across, and it's <laughs> it's pretty wild. The, the goal that the goal that Sheila had with this is to try to help citizens, as you mentioned. You know, the the consent of the governed is undermined by dishonest communication about government finances, and and that's what drove Sheila to develop the resources that were understandable. Um, and relatively simple. The, at the end of the day, you got to wonder whether the accounting standards are deliberately complicated <laughs> in the government in a way that obfuscates reality and allows it to be manipulated. Um, but we do have a, a productive contribution to make in, in, in helping citizens understand where, where their government is financially and where it's been going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, just to clarify too, for anybody listening, it is nonpartisan. So they're not, you guys aren't trying to push any agenda other than let's get our act together across yeah, the board. It's, it's, you know, what is the truth? It's, again, first principles, we were talking about that. Well, what is the truth? And at the end of the day in accounting, I've, I've become more respectful of the fact that truth really isn't necessarily a noun. There's not one right truth, but it's, a, it's more of a verb. It's a seeking and a, an honest seeking. And, and that's what, that's what we're about. We don't, you know, we're trying to help you get there and that's, that's what we do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time, Bill. It's nice to talk to you and let's, let's do it again. Yeah, definitely. That was a fun conversation. And if you haven't checked out truth and accounting yet, make sure to go over to their website, truth accounting.org. They're, just a really awesome organization and it will blow your mind as you look at the financial statements of our government um they don't just do the federal government i think everybody knows the federal government has a lot of debt and is spending a lot more than they can pay but they also break down the local government so you can look at tucson you can look at the state of arizona if you're expecting a state-funded pension, I wouldn't count on it. You can see how underfunded those are. And it's going to be interesting to see how our governments manage that, if they're going to have to raise taxes exponentially or, you know, what they're going to do. I mean, I guess they could continue borrowing as long as the printing presses are flowing. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, if you like what I'm doing with the podcast, I would love your support. You can support me on Patreon at uh, Tucson Blockchain. Or, uh, you know, the best thing to do as well is just to like, comment, subscribe, leave a review. It all goes a long way to uh, getting word out on the podcast. Tell your friends, tell your mom, buy a Bitcoin. Uh, well, at least research it before you buy it. Don't take my word for it. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening.